Hello, ladies and gentlemen. In this fourth episode, I am speaking with New York Times best-selling author and entrepreneur Weldon Long. You got to get focused on the key things you want in your life, and I use three categories: your money, your relationships, and your health. I appreciate your time today, Wally. You know, it's been. Uh, Great getting to know you a little bit since getting out, you know, so I appreciate you taking the time to do this. You're, you know, always been um, very, I guess, generous with your time and resources um, that I've known. So you know, I appreciate you doing this. Well, I appreciate that, Buck. My pleasure. Yeah. So kind of just jump into this, you know, <clears throat> the who, what, when, where, why of Wally, you know, I, I, got introduced to you through your book, Upside of Fear. Um, I believe that was your first New York Times bestseller. Um, and that was, you know, it was a big motivator for me while I was in. Uh, I read it a couple times. It was an easy read. Just kind of, you know, plowed through that. And, and through that, you give a, a very good picture of, of what I just asked. But let's, let's tell the audience here that, who might not be familiar with you um, yeah. a little bit of, uh, you know, of your story, so, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I, I find it always easier to kind of start with uh, the now and then go back, you know. I mean, as you mentioned, The Upside of Fear, I've written two other books, uh, The Power of Consistency and Consistency Selling. Uh, over the last 17 or 18 years, I've had a very successful career as an entrepreneur, business owner, a speaker, a writer, uh, you know, that whole thing. I do a lot of training consulting. But the, the real point of my story is that when I started my first company, which was in 2004, uh, just 18 months before I started that company, I was living in Concord, halfway house here in Colorado Springs, uh, and had just been released from the joint after serving uh, 13 years over about a 16-year period. From 1987 until 2003, that roughly 16-year stretch, I served 13 of those uh, in the Department of Corrections and also in the, the Federal Bureau of Prisons. And so, you know, I had a, I had a, I was a high school dropout, a real knucklehead, went to the joint the first time when I was 23, got out when I was 27. Um, you know, I was, uh, when I got out the first time, I was a ninth grade high school dropout, of course. Now I'm a convicted felon. So I didn't see much opportunity for myself. So I ended up hooking up with some guys I met in the joint, went back to prison a couple of years later for a couple of years on parole violations and some gun charges. Uh, got out again when I was 30. Now I'm a two-time convicted felon, right? Not a lot of opportunities for a ninth grade high school dropout with, you know, a two-time convicted felon. So I fell into some uh, uh, telemarketing opportunities and did that for about 18 months. And then we were indicted on federal mail fraud and money laundering charges for the illegal telemarketing. Ended up going back to the joint at 32 uh, and did another seven years, about four, the, four and a half of those years in the federal joint and had to go back to the state joint for a few years to finish up some old charges. So Ended up doing about seven years on that final stretch. But during that final stretch was when kind of my, my eyes were open and I started getting a clue about what it takes to be successful. So, and we could talk more about what that was, but I started working on those things in those last seven years. And then in January of 2003, I got out the last time, uh, which was 17 years ago, uh, to Halfway House here in the Springs. And uh, took about six months to find a job. Did that job for about a year in a heating and air conditioning company, learned how to sell air conditioners, opened up my own company. By 2009, that company was selected by Inc. Magazine as one of the fastest growing small companies in America. 
And in that same year, I wrote uh, my first book that you mentioned, The Upside of Fear. And since then, been traveling and speaking, consulting and training and writing and uh, just uh, had, uh, you know, a lot of fun, a lot of success along the way. And it really all comes down to the lessons I learned sitting in the penitentiary uh, during those last few years. Right. Um, and so you grew up in Denver, is that correct? Or, or Colorado? You're a Colorado native, is that correct? No, I actually grew up in South Louisiana and moved to Denver when I was 23. So okay. uh, been here now, it's crazy, over 30, geez, 33 years, something like that. Uh, yeah, so I spent over half my life here in Colorado, but I grew up actually in South Louisiana. Got it. And what was life like in South Louisiana? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting place, South Louisiana. I, I, I love that part of the country. I love the people, love the food. Uh, it's a very interesting culture, uh, very laid back, uh, very, very fun. And, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, it's, it's a different culture. People focus on different things. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, and this isn't really a part of the culture necessarily. It was a part of my mother's culture. My mother was uh, very devout in her religion, and that religion really espoused a philosophy of separation. Like you don't want to hang with the worldly people. So education and those things were not highly valued. And in fact, when I went to drop out of high school in ninth grade, my mother was supportive of it. Like, you know, she thought that was going to get me away from all those bad kids and have more time to go to church or whatever. And so in my family, again, not necessarily the culture of Louisiana for sure. Uh, but in my family culture, education did not really have much of a priority. And so you know, I kind of bounced around after that, went to some trade schools, took, tried welding, tried mechanics, tried electronics. I wasn't good at any of it. And uh, eventually at 23, found my way coming up to Colorado. Right. And so um, brothers, sisters, mom and dad, both in the family or, or oh, yeah. I mean, kind of give me a normal, basically a normal childhood. Well, you know, it's funny you say that the word normal. I put that in quotes for sure. I was right. the youngest of five kids. Dad was a career military guy. Uh, mother turned to religion for solace and, and perspective on life. Uh, it was a very, uh, <laughs> it was not a very warm marriage. They, they stayed married, though, until I was the youngest of five. When I was 18, they got divorced. So they hung in there and got all the kids raised. Um, but then they, they did get divorced. But looking back, you know, it's funny because I would have, when I was young, when I say young, I mean early through my 20s, uh, and before that, I thought I had a pretty normal lifestyle. Mom and dad were there, brothers and sisters, and all that. But looking back now as a 56-year-old man, you know, you can see all the flaws, and you can see all the insanity and all the dysfunction. And like, what the hell was going on? That was a, it was a freaking house of horrors, really, was what it was. And uh, so it seemed normal at the time, and it was probably not until my 30s that I realized how crazy my family was. And I can tell you, one of the most liberating moments of my life was when I realized that I could love my mother and my father, but also understand just how screwed up they were. Uh, I never got resentful and angry towards them. Uh, just realized, like, they're really flawed human beings. And guess what? So are their parents and their parents, right? And so it goes, you know, throughout the generations. But I, I think it was a huge moment for me understanding that, that you know, that it was not normal. It seemed normal coming up because it's all you know, but – Looking back, you know, it's kind, of, it's kind of funny. It's all part of the thing, though. I was watching this thing the other day, or a little while back, a few months ago. It was uh, this biography of the, the Eagles and all that okay. they've been through over the, the trials and triumphs and different things. And 
they were interviewing Joe Walsh, who back in the day, as you know, Joe Walsh was like the ultimate, you know, rock and roller and throwing televisions out of hotel rooms and destroying rooms. Right, right. Crazy rocker, lots of drugs, sex and rock and roll. Uh, he's been sober now about 20 years. And uh, I was watching him on this interview, and he's like, you know, man, uh, when you're going through it, it just seems like one, you know, kind of chaotic episode after the next, and you, you get <laughs> knocked down, you get up, another wave knocks you down, and you get that figured out. Somebody else comes up and smacks you behind the head and knocks you down, and you just think it's like a crazy chaos. But when you get a little older and look back on your life with the benefit of perspective, you realize it was all just a beautiful tapestry of your life. And that's, that's the lesson I've learned, that all of it, the good stuff, the bad stuff, it's just all part of the tapestry of my life. And uh, it, it just is the way it is. It's, it's, there's no point in complaining about it. And in fact, most of the stuff that people think is so awful for me, 13 years in prison, you know, that's some of the best stuff that ever happened to me. And everything I have today is because of the experiences I went through back then. Right. Yeah, I, and, and I guess, you know, the as you said, put the normal in, in quotations for sure, right? What, what is normal? And, and when you're in it, you know, it can seem completely normal. But as you said, to get it out and, and become older and look back, you're like, wow. Uh, <laughs> there were some, definitely some crazy moments there that I, I didn't register as crazy. It just seemed like the everyday life. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> you have a couple things in your book here. Here's, here's your book. I, I got some, some things quoted here on you know one a couple things that um stood out to me um you know one of the big ones uh i'm gonna read from it here for a second said after spending weeks focusing on who i wanted to be i made an emotional commitment to my vision i took a piece of lined paper and pen sat down at the gray metal desk in my cell and wrote down the following sentences i am an awesome father to my son i am an educated man i own a beautiful mountain home I am a successful businessman. I am a successful writer and public speaker. I'm a writing, I am writing a book on the beaches of Maui. I am wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. I have an honest, trustworthy, and beautiful wife. I'm a man of character, honor, and integrity. I stuck this list to my cell wall with toothpaste and repeated it to myself every day. I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. And from what I know of you and from our time that we spent together, um, Every single one of those things you've made come true. Um, and yeah. that's, that's an amazing thing. And, um, you know, for me, I, I took that really to heart while I was in. And I created a, a meditation mantra, um, uh, basically, that says the I am's. Um, as kind of like you started each one here. I am an awesome father. I am an educated man. And my I am meditations were going through the alphabet. Every morning, I would wake up, meditate, and go, I am, you know, abundant. I am blessed. I am compassionate and caring. I am, you know, and we go through the whole alphabet of, of I am's, and I continue to do that to this day. And um, a lot of that has come to fruition for me as well. When I got out, uh, I had a little bit easier road than most. Um, you know, I had friends waiting for me to get out that had a job set up. Uh, I, I was lucky enough to have a girlfriend to stick through me through, um, you know, through the, the rocky, rocky roads of, um, yeah. you know, as, as we say in prison, you know, that does not happen generally. Um, I was lucky enough not to have a very long sentence. So, um, it wasn't a huge interruption, but, um, yeah. still it, it generally does not happen. 
I tell people all the time, there's a very simple rule about prison. You go to the joint, you lose your wife. You go to the joint, you lose your wife. You go to the joint, you lose your wife. I tell people, I went to the joint three times. Do the math. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I just want to say thank you for this book and, and those things um, because of um, that spoke very heavily to me. I was like, well, you know, I, I can make that happen. I can do that same thing. And it's, it's been great. So I don't know if you've had somebody read that back to you or not, but, uh, um, you know, when I read that and then got to meet with you and, and when we golfed down at the Broadmoor, you know, you were very generous to invite me down and, and, and pay for the round of golf. And, you know, I, I realized I was like everything that he wrote, he, he made happen. And it became, you know, yeah. became very cool to see. I mean, you know, basically kind of, um, you wrote this book, I think, on, in Maui, correct? I did. I wrote the manuscript there uh, in 2008. I wrote the manuscript there. You know, it's funny because I think that's one of the most important passages in the book, and I actually use it quite, freq quite frequently in my speaking. And depending on which version of the book, you have, uh, which printing of the book you have, uh, if my recollection serves, that's something like a page, maybe 111, 112, something like that. And 119 in, in 119. this version. Okay. Yep. And so it's like, it's one that I use quite a bit because I think that the whole concept, if people could get the concept of positive affirmations, visualization, which is what that was all about, right? Creating that life in my mind's eye. If people could truly grasp that, then they are uh, on, on the cusp of accomplishing anything in life that they want, right? Dr. Covey in The Seven Habits used to talk about the, the conscious and unconscious serendipity of putting an idea or a dream to paper and reviewing it on, a, on an ongoing basis. You know, Napoleon Hill said, you know, as you review your list, imagine yourself already in possession of these things. So there's so much evidence through thousands of years. I mean, you can go back to biblical times, as a man thinketh, you know. And so if people could just get the, the power of visualization and committing the subconscious mind to solving out you know, productive, healthy problems. The subconscious mind is 10,000 times more powerful than the conscious mind. It's a powerful supercomputer, right? And it will work 24-7, 365 days a year to help you accomplish the things that you want. And the, the key is, is to giving it the right instructions, the right problems to solve. If you've ever had the situation where you're trying to remember the name of a song or maybe the name of a movie, and you can't remember it, and then you give up on it, and a couple of days later, it hits you out of nowhere. That, that's the subconscious mind continuing for those two days to try to solve the problem. And if you've ever had a situation where you're trying to solve a problem, a business problem, relationship problem, whatever it is, and you can't figure it out, and then one night you wake up at 2 o'clock in the morning, and bam, there's the solution. That's the subconscious mind working constantly to solve the problems that you assign it. The problem is, is that people do not often enough give the, the, the right instructions. It's like they, they just, the, the problems the subconscious mind is solving are almost by default, just like whatever problems come in your life, rather than saying, okay, these are the specific problems I wanted to solve. So in that list you just read, the, the problems that I wanted my subconscious mind to solve were to help me become a writer, help me become wealthy, to be a good father to my son. You know, I didn't know how to do all that stuff, but the subconscious mind will work 24-7, uh, you know, trying to figure out those problems. It uses a component of the brain called the reticular activating system that basically 
helps you notice the things you need to solve the problems that you want to solve. And I, and I use it today. Uh, it happens to my life all the time today. You have to give your subconscious mind the proper instructions. I'll give you a story. I was just talking to, I was working with my videographer this morning, shooting some video. And so about two years ago in 2018, I was on the internet looking at cars. I love cars. And I was looking at this uh, 2018 uh, G-Wagon 4x4 square. They only made 300 of them. And it's the basic G-Wagon, but it's wider and about a foot and a half taller. It's a beast. It's like yep. a giant I'm, a tank. I'm, I'm a car guy too, so I know the car. But okay. yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing ride. So I see this car and uh, the boxer Floyd Mayweather owned it. I saw him online with it or on a, in a picture on the internet with it. And uh, I'm like, I want one of those one day. So I clipped out the picture. I took a little screenshot of it on a little dream board I have on my phone. And it uh, wasn't like, it wasn't a have to have, need to have, just a bucket list deal, right? And so two years go by, and I'm always noticing these G-Wagons and how awesome they are. And I, I'm on a website from a, a place out in San Diego that deals with exotic cars, and I've purchased cars from them before. And on their website, they have this G550 4x4 squared. <coughs> and it was a, a flat matte black, not the shiny black, a flat black. But it was exactly like the one I had seen two years earlier on the internet. So I called the guy, we worked out the deals and I bought it. And I went out to San Diego to pick it up. I flew out there to drive it back. And I'm in the, uh, it's a giant warehouse with these exotic cars. It's not really a dealership. It's just a big warehouse with every amazing car you could imagine. And I walk in, they've got it sitting there in the delivery area for me to pick up. And the guy starts walking me through it. And at one point he says to me, he says, yeah, this, this uh, G-Wagon belonged to a very famous athlete. I said, you're not going to tell me it was Floyd Mayweather's. He said, how did you know? I said, dude, I saw this car two years ago in a, in a video he did. And I got a picture of it on my dream board. So two weeks later, I get the title. And sure enough, it says Floyd Mayweather on it. It, was, it wasn't just the same model. It was the exact, exact same, same car I had snapped a picture of two years earlier. That's the power of the subconscious mind of giving the right instructions to your subconscious brain. It will figure things out. And I could tell you a hundred stories like that in my life. Right. Well, that's pretty amazing. Um, I, I was, I was kind of curious. We were going to talk about cars, but since you kind of got into cars, let's go down that for a second. Um, that car is amazing. So congratulations on, on getting that. What, what, uh, what else do you have in your stable? Just out of curiosity. Uh, I got a, a Ferrari California T, which I love. I've been toying around with getting getting rid of it and getting a 488 GTB, but it's a lot more money and, and with the, everything with the economy right now, I'm just kind of holding off. But it's funny because I just went and got the Ferrari. I, was, I keep it in storage in the winter. It's beautiful this weekend, so I went and got it. I'm driving home. I'm like, I'm never selling this car. It's a great little great little car. It's called an entry-level Ferrari, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah whatever. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. I didn't, I didn't know if there's an entry-level Ferrari, but okay. Yeah. Um, you know, but the California, they, they are amazing. I mean, that, that, and, uh, I think if I was going to do a model of, of Ferrari, I may be the, the big brother to the California, which is the super fast. Yeah. Um, Beautiful is, car. Is, yeah, is, is really my kind of dream Ferrari. But the Mercedes, um, you've got my, my dream Mercedes. Well, that G-Wagon um, special, man. Yeah, that thing's just, I mean, yeah, it's, 
if you don't know the car, it's basically a Jeep Wrangler Rubicon on steroids. <laughs> <laughs> With a Mercedes logo on the front end. Yeah, and, and the Mercedes, you know, you know, luxury on the inside. Yeah. Um, you know, um, in the book, I'm going to read, a, you know, kind of a little bit of the Ford here. Um, and then I was going to ask you, you know, what, what, I mean, you wanted to become a writer, but what, what, made you write this book and I want to talk a little bit about that, but 20 years of drinking, drugging, robbing, and lying led well into more than a decade of time spent in prisons, jails, and halfway houses and a strained relationship with a son he barely knew, but through a revealing and profound transformation, long learned to change fear into a positive motivating force and use his mind to strengthen his will, even in the bleakest circumstances. And then I'm going to jump into the part, um, where you have the acronym of FEAR, where you say FEAR is focus, emotional commitment, action, and responsibility. I set out to build my new life according to that formula. So if you could kind of talk us through that a little bit. I mean, yeah, we've talked a little bit about, you know, your past, and I just kind of, you know, did it a little bit, um, basics there, but, and the whole mindset, and your your whole trainings now are, are based around mindset, I, from my understanding. Is that yeah. correct, Don? Yeah, I do that. I do a lot of sales development as well, but the mindset is an important part of the sales development too. I'm doing an event next week for uh, this association of high school and college uh, athletic coaches, football, baseball, basketball, whatever. And we're doing a program for those guys on how the mindset affects, you know, athletic performance. So it applies to everything in life. And really what it comes down to is, you know, if you understand the basic relationship between your thoughts and your life, as Emerson said, you know, we become what we think about all day long. If you understand the basic premise that there's a connection between your thoughts and your life, and not everybody assumes that's the case, by the way, but if you read one of my books, you'll probably understand and agree with that because a pretty, there's so many, a myriad of examples of the relationship, how a thought transmits itself into something in your life. But once you figure that out, the next question is, okay, how do I, how do I like, put the things in my mind, right? How do I make sure the things in my mind are consistent with the things I want in my life? And that's where the fear process comes in. And so that first step is focus. You got to get focused on the key things you want in your life. And I use three categories, your money, your relationships, and your health. Right? Your money is your business. It can be your financial security, uh, your career, that type of thing. Your relationships are, you know, your relationships, you know, community and friends, family, whatever. And then your health is your mental, spiritual, and physical health. So what do you want in each of those areas? And the key is, you know, the confused mind says no. So you just got to focus on one or two things that you want in each area. The key to it is getting focused on the key priorities of your life. Once you get focused, you got to make sure to identify, okay, what are the activities that I need to get engaged in to accomplish those things, right? So you got to figure out what one or two things that I do every single day to help me reach this goal. And that's kind of the focus step. The E, emotional commitment, is now I got to take the things that I want and the things I need to do, and I need to get deeply emotionally committed to them and basically put them in my mind as new habitual thoughts and expectations. And that process is a two-step process of first writing them down, as you just outlined in the Upside of Fear, where I went through and outlined all the things that I want. And so step one is writing them down. Step two is what I call a quiet time ritual and reviewing those things every single day and metaphorically picking them up every morning and putting them inside your head, 
right? The reason that's so important is because every single day, you're going to make a million decisions. We all go through life making decisions every day. We all go through life thinking every day. Unfortunately, we don't always think about what we're thinking about before we think about it. So this quiet time ritual is to have your priorities on a sheet of paper. These are the things I'm going to think about today. And by reinforcing that on a daily basis, a daily ritual, now I'm thinking about each morning the things I'm going to think about the rest of the day. That ensures that my habitual thoughts throughout the course of the day are consistent with what I want. So that's the focus, emotional commitment. Third step is action. You know, you got to take consistent action towards the things you want. There's a whole host of activities and uh, things that we teach that drive the consistent actions. And then the, the fourth step is responsibility, personal responsibility. And really that comes down to accepting responsibility for our choices and decisions right? You can't control what happens around you, but you always control your responses to those things as Stephen Covey would have, would have uh, said if he were here today. So focus, emotional commitment, action, responsibility. It's a very simple process and we use it in business management execution. We use it for coaches. We use it for salespeople. We use it for personal development. You name it. I mean, the, the same four principles work across the board in so many different areas. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've taken that little bit and have used it myself, kind of like I said, with the, the morning mantras, the, the meditation I go through of, of kind of just saying, you know, who I am, what I want to be, what I'm, I'm thinking about all day long. And then as you just pointed out, you know, so many of us just get caught up into sideswiped about thinking about things that don't really matter or worrying about things that might not ever happen or do all these things and versus just being present and staying focused on what we need to do and just kind of letting right. things unfold. We'll get running off with the what ifs. And next thing you know, we're spun out in some place emotionally or someplace yep. else. And then that is, you know, counterproductive for everybody that's involved. You, you yourself, and probably as you're saying, your relationships too, because it spins you out potentially with relationships, potentially spins you out in business, all these things. So is you're saying the get, getting that into your mind, controlling your thinking, you know, I, when I was, in, you know, as I say, my, my state funded vacation time, I really focused on mind and what that meant. And, you know, as you just pointed out, Emerson quote, you know, what you think about is what you become and really started to ingranulize that into controlling my thoughts and being present to what I am thinking. And if I didn't like what I was thinking, changing my thought pattern into something else. And just right. taking, you know, one, two, three seconds just to be like, stop that thinking and, and, and focus on what you do want, not what you don't want. And and this life became way easier. I mean, in prison, as as we both know, you know, there's a radical acceptance to, to being in prison. Um, right. You don't have a whole lot of control over, over anything really other than what you think because you're, you're told when you can basically take showers, when you're eat, what you can eat, what you, you know, you know, basically everything is, is, is controlled for you. And so I really is like, well, I can control what I think and I can control how I act about this situation. And I chose to choose that, make that time um, as pleasant as I could because the way I thought about it and I thought about it like, well, okay, I'm a monk. I'm going through my studies. I, I'm, you know, I'm in this place. that's you know, a place of, I can choose to be like, this is my ch choice of schooling, so to speak. And I, yep. do, Dodell, or did a deep dive into mindset and you know Eastern philosophy, 
um, ancient religions. You know, I read seven religions while I was in, and, and you know, all of them basically kind of came back to the same thing: that we are truly what we make ourselves yep. into through our thoughts, um, and it, it all goes around compassion and love and 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 those kind of things. So, um, you know, I really started to to focus on that. Um, yeah. And your book, you know, kind of, you know, drove that home. You, you mentioned Stephen Covey. Um, and I'd like to, you know, through getting to know you, I, I learned that you got to become good friends with him. Um, you know, I think it was on Maui. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, but, you know, kind of how did that happen? I mean, you, you, you're a three-time felon and yeah. you, you get, he's the author of Seven Habits, and, and, he writes, you know, the forward of your book or, or, or gives you a quote. This book comes from a magna magnificent person who learned the lessons of life out of a profound prison experiences. Despite the harsh language, Wally Long is true diamond and, and the rough who produced this inspiring, illuminating account of the path he took to the freedom and prosperity. Um, and, and I take from that, you know, you truly freed your mind first. Um, and, and that, and then, um, you know, you, you, like I, I started out reading your I am's and you made every single one of those happen. You know, how did, how did you get to meet Steven and how, or Dr. Covey, I should say, and you know, how did that relationship, you know, blossom for you? Yeah. So it's another really example of the mindset and the focus and the visualization. Uh, so what happened in 2008, December of 2008, I had finished the manuscript of The Upside of Fear, and I was talking to my editor, and he said, well, we need to start working on um, getting endorsements. Who would you like to get an endorsement from? And of course, if you know my story, Seven Habits and Stephen Covey were instrumental in my entire uh, development, right? That was the first book I read on this journey. And so I, I made the joke that I'd like an endorsement from Stephen Covey, and he kind of laughed about it. It's like, you're not getting an endorsement from Stephen Covey, Right. So, uh, you know, I understood that. So what I did, though, is I wrote it down on my, on my uh, you know, on my what I call a prosperity plan, all the things that you read earlier. I have new ones all the time, of course. But I added that to the bottom of it. Stephen R. Covey has endorsed the upside of fear. Every day I would visualize it. Every day I would imagine it. And five months went by, and we'd been trying to get in touch with him, but we weren't able to. But five months went by, and I was doing a speaking event, and just before I went on stage, this guy in, in, the, in the, this uh, business event where I was speaking announced to the crowd that he, he said, you know, most of you know my daughter Julie is Stephen's Covey, Stephen Covey's personal assistant, and they're going to be in Colorado Springs next month. If anybody here would like to meet him, let me know. And after five months of us been, you know, trying to reach Dr. Covey and sending letters and emails, all of a sudden I'm 10 feet away from a guy that uh, his daughter works for Covey. Right, So I do my presentation. The guy comes up to me afterwards, and he says, Dr. Covey needs to read your book. And it was still in manuscript form. It wasn't even published yet. I said, I, I agree. I've been trying to send copies for five months to him, right? And so he gets to the phone. He calls his daughter, Julie. He sends two copies of the manuscript. Uh, a month later, Dr. Covey's in town. They arrange a meeting, and Dr. Covey and I uh, get a chance to speak and get to know one another. He told me he loved the book. and uh, a few days later, he made the decision to endorse the book, and he wrote the endorsement that, um, that you read earlier. Uh, about six months after that, he called me up and asked if I'd like to speak with him, and we did a big event in Omaha, Nebraska at the Quest Center there and just became uh, 
just a, a very huge source of uh, help and confidence and just an extremely generous man. In fact, I don't, you can't see it. There's too much reflection there, but that's actually a picture of Dr. Covey and myself uh, the night that we met, uh, which was a couple of days before he agreed to endorse the book. But it, it, to me, it's another, another example of how me visualizing and, and, and uh, you know, intentionally focusing on a, a desired outcome. Again, the subconscious mind will figure it out. It will figure out the resources, the opportunities, the people, everything you need to make things happen. But you have to give it to the subconscious mind because consciously, you know, we just don't have the brain power to solve these complex issues. The subconscious mind is 10,000 times more powerful. So you got to feed it to your subconscious mind, which is a process of writing it down and reviewing it every single morning in the quiet time ritual. You're feeding the instructions every day to the subconscious mind, these are the problems I need you to resolve for me. The house on Maui, the, the books, the whatever it is, the being a great dad. I don't know how to do it. The subconscious mind will find out how to do it. And so that's the thing. You know, you mentioned people oftentimes focusing on what they're for instead of what they're against. One of my favorite saying is, sayings is that where, where the focus goes, the energy flows. So your energy is going to flow where your focus flows. If I'm focused on everything I'm against, then that energy and that resistance and that fighting is going to flow towards the stuff I'm against. If I focus on what I'm for, then my energy and my will, it's all going to flow towards these more aspirational, inspirational things I want to do. So you got to make sure that you're focusing your energy where you want to go. Um, because, you know, where you focus that energy, that's where you're going to get the results. For better or for worse, by the way. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like the, what we were saying earlier on, you know, what you think about you become. And if you're constantly thinking about the things that you're worried about, those things are going to manifest in your life versus the things that you're wanting to manifest in your life. You're focusing on what you don't want to manifest and you're continually bringing them into your life. I believe. Yep. Nietzsche said, we attract that, which we fear. Your mother yeah. said, be careful what you wish for. They've known this for a long time. <laughs> right. Um, well, I'm going to be conscious of your time. I know you said you had some other things going on. Um, just a couple more quick questions here, sure. a couple of fun ones. Um, you know, obviously you're, you've become very successful and you're, you've done a couple other books that you mentioned. You know, what, what are you continuing to, you have another book in the works or are you, you know, kind of getting away from that or, you know, and yeah. what impact are you, are you looking to make, you know, not just in your community? I know you're very generous to, um, you know, like when I first got out and reached out to you, you responded pretty quickly and, you know, invited me down to have lunch and then we played golf and we continued to, to talk. So, I mean, I know that you're a huge inspiration for a lot of the guys in and that you're, you know, a large inspiration for, um, you know, your, your speaking events yeah. and things, um, you know, but what looking back, you know, what big impact would you say that you'd like to make out of your life? And, you know, are you, are you working on another book? You know, I've got that? a, I've got a, I've got a couple, uh, I've got a couple of books I'm noodling around. Uh, one's for organizational management and execution. There's another one that's more of just a, a, a very specific collection of inspirational stories that fit a certain, uh, a certain genre that I think could be very, very powerful. Uh, so I, I, I don't have anything done on those. I'm just kind of, you know, they're noodling around in there. Uh, 
in terms of, you know, other projects, I've, I've got uh, an app that we're launching for a particular industry. I've got the training, the speaking, uh, and just, you know, always uh, my hands are something I, I mentioned to you. I opened a new heating and air conditioning company again last year uh, because I'm a glutton for punishment apparently. So uh, that, I think it's been a money pit for sure, but eventually it will turn around. We're actually, we're on the, just on the cusp, I think of some real progress financially. And then this thing hit a month ago. So it's really, you know, it's really kind of set us back, but we'll get through it. You know, we always do. And, uh, you know, I do a lot of work in the prisons, uh, actually getting ready for a trip out to Delta, Colorado. That's uh, on postponement probably now till August. Uh, but I get into the federal joint down in Florence, uh, you know, you, you, once a year or so, sometimes a couple times a year, been down to Canyon City at Territorial many times, out at Fremont, uh, Four Mile, uh, been to the women's joint a couple of times, and just trying to encourage people. You know, we started this conversation with you commenting that you read The Upside of Fear while you were still in the joint. And the, the number one purpose, the number one sense of satisfaction that I get from that book you didn't say this word expressly, but I, I, got a, I got a sense that that's what you were thinking, is that it gave you hope. And that, okay, if this knucklehead can figure it out, right, then there's no way that you can't figure it out, right? right. So, and and, and that, that's the message that I hope people get from the upside of fear. And that is hope. Because there's a lot of times in the joint where it seems hopeless, especially if you're one of these guys like me that went back two or three times. It's like, what the hell have I got to do to get my act together? And it, you start doubting your ability to even do it, right? Because every time I walked out of the joint, what do you think the first thing I said was? Never going back. back. <laughs> Two years later, I'm back. Like, dang, I got it again. Ain't never going back. Two years later, I'm back. Dang it. You start losing confidence in your ability to get your shit together. And so I think what the upside of fear shows is that as long as you keep getting back up, it's that old saying, right? It's not how many times you fall down. It's how many times you get back up. But as long as you get up one more time than you fall down, you're going to make it. And so the book, I hope, gives hope to men and women who are incarcerated and struggling. And not necessarily incarcerated. I mean, people have all kinds of different difficulties and, you know, situations they're in. And I get you know, letters and emails from people that were never in prison, but the book gives them hope. Like, wow, I can, right. I can make this situation better. But I would certainly hope anybody who ever read that thing in the joint would say, okay, it's game on. I got to get my shit together and let's get some stuff done here. And they can. Yes, for sure. I, I would agree. And, and yeah, it, it, I never came out and said that, but it definitely was a, um, a beacon of hope. Um, and as I think another quote you have in there, um, this kind of starts out and I have taken it and used it a few times personally. So hopefully you don't mind, um, you know, that prison's a dark, lonely place. It doesn't matter how much love and support you have. Um, and that's true. It, it, it's a dark, lonely place. And, and anytime that, you know, a book or, you know, coming in at speakers coming in, uh, you know, the Defy program that I was involved with, having individuals coming in on a weekly basis and actually spending time and treating you like a human versus just a number and, um, you know, offender so-and-so. Yeah. Um, that, that hope is a big, big thing. So, you know, I, I think that that's um, a big, you know, parting wisdom kind of thing as I was going to talk about is, don't lose hope um, because right. of no matter what, there's always, as you said, if you get back up, there's always hope. So that's yeah. great. 
that's 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 the bottom line. Get up one more time, and you're going to be a winner. Yeah, and then with that, that's a good. Um, you you had another quote in here that I I thought was great. That kind of goes along with what we were just talking about by uh, Henry David Thoreau. If one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life that which he imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. And I think that that's, you know, the hope for us all, right? That if, if we continue to move towards that goal and sooner or later, as you said, get back up, you, you, you'll look back and be like, well, I'm at the top of the mountain, you know, just got to keep on striving. Um, so exactly. just a couple more fun questions for you to, to wrap this up and I appreciate your time. You know, if you could see any entertainer in the world today, front row, who would you go see? <laughs> in their prime or today? Like where they are right now? Today? No, no. Living or dead. Who? I mean, any, anybody. Who, who, who would you go see? Entertainment. Not like, mm. you know, it's just fun stuff. You know, you know uh, who I know? Go, well, we, we'll do both. Fun, a fun one and a, a serious one. But, I, I mean, I, I want to hear what you have to say. Uh, strictly entertainment uh, would have been Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, John Paul Jones, and John Bonham's in their prime. Right okay. before, before John Bonham's died, I think 1980. So it would have been late, you know, 77, 78, somewhere. To be front row when those guys at their prime. Okay. And uh, then, uh, philosophical, political, spiritual, uh, Abraham Lincoln. Ah, that's a that's yeah. a good one. Yeah, that's, or Benjamin uh, Franklin. It has to be it might be a toss up. Benjamin Franklin or Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, both both amazing, right? Um, and then kind of playing off of that a little bit, if you could invite anyone, um, so you kind of maybe jumped ahead of me here, but if you could invite anyone to uh, over for dinner and then have uh, you know after dinner drinks or activity, play a game, whatever, who would you invite over, living or dead? And then what, what activity would you do? Uh, the person I would invite over on that scenario would be my father, who died uh -huh. 23 years ago. He was the reason uh, that I decided to get my act together. He died on June 10th of 1996 when I was in prison. And that was the day that I decided I had to change the course of my life. So if I could have dinner with anybody, it would be my dad. And I would just want him to see that he did not need to be embarrassed about me ever again. Because I was, a, I was a huge source of disappointment to my father. He probably never would have said that because he wouldn't want to hurt my feelings. But my son is 27. And if my son was doing the stuff that I was doing, I would be massively disappointed. So I know my dad was disappointed. He was kind enough never to say it directly. But um, I would love for him to see my life today. My brothers and I talk about it all the time. Because I was, I was the youngest of five kids. was a total screw-up. was a black sheep. And my brothers are like, what? If dad was here today, what would he think? <laughs> he couldn't even imagine this. That right. would be extraordinary. Well, that, that's very cool um, and, and very thoughtful. It kind of shows the, the man who you are. Well, hey, Wally, um, you know, thanks for your time today. It's been a bless. You know, you know I, I, I'm just grateful for, for your time and, and every time. And, you know, hopefully that uh, we're able to get this uh, COVID situation, you know, past and um i look forward to maybe playing another round of golf with you sometime this spring potentially so um, awesome you know crazily enough the broadmoor closed a month ago they're closed to memorial day the entire hotel golf course hotel it's a ghost town over there they got fences around it it's insane wow to memorial day wow. that's in may so i don't know man they're yeah 
So yeah, well, I mean, no. the, yeah, the the governor came out last night and you know did the state lockdown or you know stay at home mandate you know through uh, the end of April. Um, so you know, and then Denver, we were on stay at home through April thirtieth. I think the governor said uh, April twenty eighth, which was the last Sunday of the month. Uh, hoping to go back to work that following Monday, I guess is what he's thinking. And then. Um, yeah, you know, this is, you know, talking about that, it's a it's a crazy time right now with all this. But, you know, fortunately for guys like you and I, I think this kind of lockdown's a, a way different situation than than past lockdowns. I, I always tease my girlfriend. I was like, well, I upgraded in Selly, so there, I've Absolutely. got that going up. <laughs> hey, listen, you know, I tell people uh, the 13 years I did in the joint, the first six years were miserable. The last seven after I got my head straight, were seven of the most amazing years of my life. So there's a lot of productivity can come out of these kind of times. You know, I mean, yeah. it's the economic uncertainty causes a lot of stress for people. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of good things that can come out of this kind of time for reflection. Reflection, creativity, all kinds of things. I think Shakespeare wrote all his plays while they were in plague lockdown. Um, Is that right? I know, didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So, That's interesting. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of creativity that can come out of these kind of times. Interesting. For sure. Interesting. Um, well, cool. appreciate you, man. All right, Buck. Um, Good to see yeah. you, man. Good to see you. Have a great day, man. All right, brother. Talk to you soon. Right. Yeah, bye-bye. Bye. Art for Redemption is brought to you in partnership with Radio Red Rocks. This is your host, Buck Adams. If you are interested in being a guest on the show, please contact us through artforredemption.com. Art for Redemption is an e-commerce platform for incarcerated artists. We are currently collecting art from artists nationwide to be showcased in the first ever coffee table book for this genre. Check us out at artforredemption.com.